welcome to the Catholic Connect podcast. I'm your host, David Scubin. This is a podcast for all Catholics and people of goodwill who strive to live in the world, but not be of the world. First and foremost, we need to be disciples of Jesus ourselves, and then we go forth and make disciples of all nations, just as our Lord commanded. Through a series of timely topics and great guests, we will take that long and narrow journey to heaven together, encouraging each other in faith and virtue along the way. So let's get started. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. It's a real blessing to have the following guest join us. Born and raised in North Los Angeles area, uh, he studied at St. Mary's College of California and the University of Auburn. Uh, he's now currently enrolled in an online liturgical theology program at the Liturgical Institute. He also owns a special event entertainment company in the LA area, but that has been disrupted by the COVID virus at this time. So uh, that's something we're going to be talking about here in a little bit. But uh, most importantly, he's my friend and he is our brother in Christ. Chris Maori joining us. Chris, it's a blessing to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, David, for having me. It's great to be here. And I call you our U.S. correspondent for uh, the Catholic Connect podcast. Uh, we appreciate you joining us up here in the, the Great White North. I was going to say, though, that, uh, a, that most of our listeners are from Canada. Uh, some points that uh, that uh, we can definitely give to you is you are a hockey fan. So a little bit anyways. Is that the Wayne Gretzky influence uh, in L.A. there? Or what was uh, what got you going on hockey? I am. I I enjoyed watching Wayne as a kid. Um, I got to actually sit at the glass for a Kings game as a child when Wayne was still playing, which was kind of awesome. Um, and I guess I'm kind of a Kings fan just being from L.A., um, but I'm actually a Penguins fan from the Pittsburgh Penguins um, because as a child, I really loved Penguins, and that was the only sport that had a team where Penguin was the mascot. And I've stayed loyal. Hey, there you go. And they've had some pretty good players over the years, too, uh, if you think of uh... – Mario Lemieux and now Sidney Crosby, right? There's been some good ones. And uh, I'm sure you uh, probably familiar with uh, Connor McDavid up here as well. So uh, probably not too many people in LA that are familiar with him. So <laughs> true. True. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you, Chris. Thanks very much. And uh, so why don't we start with your upbringing, Chris? You were born and raised in LA. You're still in that area. Um, tell us a little bit about your family and, and where the seeds of faith were planted in your soul. Yeah. So I was, uh, born this will connect i was born in a hospital in a little in a city called burbank california just immediately north of downtown los angeles but grew up in a city called santa clarita about 20 miles north of la um, my mom and my dad um, were married shortly before i was born uh, civilly and then got married in the church seven years later um, they my mom was a catholic by birth and in upbringing. My father was a Presbyterian. Um, my father converted when I was 12. Um, and he gave most of the credit to our parish priest, Father Ed, and my mom, I'm sure, played some sort of an influence. But my parents grew up following the promises of their Catholic marriage, at least, uh, in bringing me up Catholic. So I went to regular religious education or catechism classes as they may be known to some of the listeners uh, since first grade I believe is when they were offered at my age and um, grew up so I grew up there and then went to public school actually for all of my my mo the majority of my under education until high school and I ended up going to a small Catholic high school back in Burbank called Providence High School and the school is actually attached to the hospital that I was born in, um, the Providence St. Joseph's Hospital, run by the same Sisters of Providence. Um, and then graduated there. As you mentioned, I started my undergrad studies at St. Mary's College of California, which is in a little town of, called Moraga, just outside of Oakland in Northern California. Um, did two years of study there, moved back to L.A. for one year, did a study at University of Laverne, only to follow my career back to Northern California for the next seven years um, living up there and then moved back to Santa Clarita 2012 and have been here ever since. Your experiences at Catholic school, um, so not only at this, the college, but also a, a little bit of your time, I guess, in high school, right? Was there, would you say that the schooling was, uh, was an influence in your faith or was it more your family or a little of both or where did that all kind of fit in? So that's a, that's a fun story. So, um, 
I'll get back to this, but if you noticed in my written bio to you, I put the word Catholic in quotes before my high school. Um, and, and we'll get back to that. But my Catholic, my love of the faith really started um, kind of out of pride, actually, to, to not give any credit to a sin, but to mention it. I was in sixth grade. I was in catechism class. And we walked into class, and it started differently than any other class that I'd been in catechism-wise. The teacher began to immediately, without introduction, throw us a biblical pop quiz. She had questions on things from the Bible, and she just started asking them and asked if anybody could raise their hand and answer. And I attempted several and failed miserably on every single one and didn't know what I was talking about at all. And then she explained that she did this because our two parish catechism system was going to hold what they called the Bible ball. And it was going to be a quiz game show of the four different sixth grade classes that existed at the two parishes against each other in a Bible trivia way. And she was looking for people who wanted to join the team. And Again, out of pride, I said, I want to join the team as the guy who didn't get any of the questions right and didn't really know who I was, what I was talking about. Um, at that point, I had been a go to church for the donuts kind of guy. And don't get me wrong, I still love a good donut. Um, but <laughs> that was my motivation. So it turns out they, they, the game show was partially rigged, quote unquote, because they gave you 120 questions about the Bible or from the Bible. And they were only going to ask those questions. So all you had to do was study slash memorize 120 questions about the Bible as a sixth grader, separate from your own studies. And you'd probably do really well at the competition. So I actually did. I actually sat down and I memorized all 120 questions. My mom would quiz me every day. I would study and study and study. Um, I actually found two typos in the questions while I was studying because I actually <laughs> used some source material and went to the Bible because something didn't sound right. Um, but what I found was I found a love for the church and for Jesus via my intellect or at the point that left thereof. Um, and we won. We went perfect team. We didn't miss a single question. Um, and one of the questions that I brought up to the hosts that there was a typo in was the last question I got um, when we were in the final round, which was quite providential and fun. Um, but that was it. So it had nothing to do with my schooling. It really had nothing to do with my family. At that point, at least the beginning, the spark of faith. And then I had met who is now my best friend six years playing soccer. We had interacted and hung out outside of soccer a little bit but it wasn't until i entered seventh grade that we started hanging out a lot his family had begun uh had joined an organization called the militia immaculata or mi for short it's an organization founded by father maximum saint maximilian colby so so i joined the organization and started hanging out with him a lot which is kind of where we became best friends and that really i, I consecrated myself to mary on December 12th, 2000, December, yeah, 12th, 2000, um, was my initial consecration to Mary Militia Immaculata. Um, the eldest in that family has since become a perpetually professed missionary in the Father Colby Missionaries, which is kind of the overarching official organization behind the MI. And that was kind of um, in high school when I went to Providence. I attended high school and it was my second semester, my freshman year. It was the open house. We were studying Old Testament. It was an Old Testament theology class. And my parents attended the open house. And the teacher came up to my mom and said, and asked what parochial school I had attended before high school. And my mom said, none. I was a public school kid until high school. And my mom asked why. And the teacher said, because he can out talk theology of everyone at this school who went to every parochial school in the in the southern california area before attending this high school and it was just an informal love of the study of our faith um and i could out theologize most of the kids and several of the teachers at that school 
Well, you know, it's interesting, Krista, what you're saying there is that, uh, you know, it started with memorization of just a bunch of answers to questions. I think that's pretty cool. Another funny thing, when you mentioned donuts, I, that, that would go well up here in Canada. We like our donuts here too. That's a good way to draw people in. But is that interesting? Because I actually went to a uh, private uh, a Christian school. It was run by, by Protestants. And uh, when I was uh, very young, like grade one to four kind of thing. And one thing that they really emphasized quite a bit there was memorizing scripture verse. And uh, I look back and even memorizing the Ten Commandments, memorizing the books of the Bible and a handful of scripture, just like a, a lot of good Protestants do. Uh, I was really actually very thankful for that because I actually do remember a lot of that, uh, that material that I memorized and some of the verses and even just the books of the Bible. I, I remember them to this day, you know, and it sounds a little silly to maybe some people, but somebody gives you a book in the Bible, there's probably a lot of Catholics that wouldn't know where that book was unless they go to the, the table of contents, right? So that's interesting how that, uh, there's, that foundation was coming from memorization of Catholic teaching. That's, that's really interesting to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then decided because I went to a small Catholic high school, I wanted to go to a small Catholic college. So I applied and sent off and took off for St. Mary's College, California, Moraga and found another, quote, Catholic, unquote, situation um, <laughs> in which I, as uh, a more orthodox, not big O, but little O orthodox Catholic, almost was the minority at the school, uh, both in terms of students and faculty and staff. And so I did not find, again, a place, an institutional place to nourish the faith that I have found and the intellectual love of that faith that I had found. So it all came down to very informal study. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And would you say that, um, I mean, obviously a lot of God's grace has a lot to do with, with your journey and, and getting to, to where you're at at that point, but uh, you mentioned uh, St. Maximilian Colby and that group that, uh, that you had an association with, but was there a, was there some saints too that you think were that you had a, a devotion to that seemed to maybe really pick you up and, and pull you through some of those times to get you into that uh, that young adult area or the young adult age and uh, continue to be a witness of your faith to others? It, if I'm going to choose one, it's going to be Saint Max. Um, he ended up being my confirmation after joining the MI, learning about his life. Um, there was just a there's just a a beauty and a following of truth to the life of St. Max that really, that I really grabbed the hold of spiritually and found a connection with. And so it was St. Max, if it's anybody, I will say this much. I know that um, in terms of, what's the word I'm looking for? In terms of the patronages of the saints, I'm sure there's a few up there who, who pushed me along in other directions because of their patronages and, and the way that I was living my life uh, that I may not know of or didn't have a devotion to, but it's definitely St. Max. And of course, his devotion to Our Lady that, that guided me in, in any direction. Um, and then growing up in the St. John Paul II generation um, and being alive at least at the end of his life and pontificate, I know from a living saint perspective that had a huge influence on me as well. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, we talk a lot actually about Padre Pio, another modern day saint on this podcast too. And, and St. Maximilian Kobe, in case uh, some people might not know uh, a Catholic priest during the time of world war II was captured by the, the Nazis, Nazi Germany. It was interned in one of the concentration camps. Uh, long story short, when uh, there was a prisoner uh, a gentleman that was uh, chosen to uh, to to be executed uh, by the uh, the Nazi, the SS, uh, Saint Maximilian Kolbe, Father Maximilian Kolbe, uh, chose to to give his life in exchange for that gentleman's life. And he had uh, a wife and children, and a really neat story about that too. And when Saint Maximilian was was canonized officially as a saint in the church. Uh, the uh, the gentleman that he had exchanged his life for was actually at that canonization. So uh, pretty cool story there. And of course, St. John Paul II, uh, be really interesting to see what his life would be like now with social media. He was really the kind of the globetrotting Pope, right? He was, uh, we, we talk about the church going to the people and he was really the first Pope that really went to the people, didn't he, Chris? Like he was 
don't know how many countries he went to. I know he came to Canada several times. He was in the United States several times. Uh, I can only imagine the uh, the following now with social media and Twitter and Facebook that uh, that he would have when he was making it seemed like at least four to six trips every year. Yeah, he was a rock star for lack of a better term. Um, so he made, I just, I just looked it up because we're sitting here on computers. He made 104 foreign trips more than all previous popes combined for literally a total of 1.17 million kilometers or 725,000 miles for those of them in the United States. Um, so he, he was the traveling Pope. He was the rock star Pope. Um, I, I couldn't imagine what his pontificate would have been like with social media, with his ability to connect with even more people. Cause of course that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to connect with as possible and he did it in person and via he had available, but I couldn't imagine if he had the media we have now. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be pretty incredible. I think Pope Benedict, he tried to do some of that too, even though that really wasn't his style to go and, and travel a lot. Pope Francis has done a little bit as well, but uh, uh, again, not, not really the, uh, the style of, of either of those pontificates, but, uh, but, uh, but still good. But uh, yeah, Pope John Paul II, uh, another giant modern saint that uh, we can look to uh, for an example of virtue in our lives. So let's kind of get back to, to that time when you were a young adult, Chris, maybe that, that time between then and now. Uh, so you're, uh, you're into DJing, into the entertainment business in, in LA there. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got into that and what it's like to be a Catholic living in that scene. You know, up here in Canada, we're familiar with Hollywood and LA and, and uh, it doesn't seem like a very super friendly place for Catholics. So tell us a little bit about uh, your life experiences in that world. Yeah, so again, um to to chalk up finding a vocation amongst a vice um like <laughs> i did my faith uh I, I found it in pride i didn't want to be the guy who didn't know about the bible so i took the opportunity to hard and that was my pride well i found djing because i was lied to uh, i was it was 2006 um i would was out of a job, the career that I thought I would have for most of my life had not worked out. And just kind of searching the world, I had done production audio for play and drama productions, both in high school and in college, and done some audio for small concerts and things like that. And so I thought maybe I could get back into that world. I enjoyed that. So I Craigslisted getting a job in production audio, found a company. I was out of a job, so I was a little desperate applied, got an immediate phone call back. They said, you can interview anytime. They did open interviews anytime the office was open. And I was showered, shaved, changed and at their office within the hour after that first phone call because I didn't have a job. And the owner of the company then, he was the owner, walked me around, did the interview on foot, not even sitting at a table, walked me around for about an hour and then said, yeah, you're going to be a great wedding DJ. And I said, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to do production audio. And he looked at me and he said, Oh, we don't do that. I just put that in the Craigslist ad. And I was like, okay. Um, but I needed a job and it seemed to pay all right for what it was. And so that was a Thursday. He sent me out on my first kind of observation training event, uh, two days later on the Saturday night, March of 2006. And it was a Catholic parochial schools, auction dinner dance was the event that we went to and so he sent me i helped out it was my first ever time and i fell in love it i mean i watched people have fun for a living literally party for a living and i immediately fell in love that was again march of 2016 by april of that same year due to a very poor training program at that company at the time i did my first solo wedding they gave me what they thought was an easy one and it was kind of a sink or swim moment for me. Um, I was definitely not prepared and very nervous, but I swam. Um, the bride and groom were very happy at the end. And I had found an even deeper love for the job because unlike that first auction dinner dance, where it was just really nice to hang out and help some great people make some great money. And of course, love the Catholic church. So that was a bonus, but there was a very cool aspect to being an integral part of 
two people's greatest day of their life until they have kids, hopefully. Um, and there was a really cool, and again, it goes back to pride, but I, I won't even say kind of the vice pride. It was, it was an honor to be a part of that. And then it was an honor to do well, to make sure that I did what they wanted to do and that they had that day. And so that's what it was. I just, I just fell in love. And um, what's really funny is I had been out of work at that point for a matter of several months. I had hopped around between different opportunities and jobs that popped up, but I had people in my life who were like, well, what do you want to do? What are you good at? And then I got this job and then almost everyone in my life said, oh, you know, I can see you being really good at that. And I was like, well, where were you six months ago when I didn't know what I wanted to do? Um, so it worked out in the, in the long run, just longer than it should have. But I, I really do thoroughly enjoy it. In terms of how my faith fits into that, um, it's, a, it's a challenge in a couple of ways. One, the what I do in terms of playing the music is not always the most holy of scenarios. Um, there is what the way that it's been, the way that I've had discussions and heard it from priests is not everything has to be true, good, and beautiful, but if everything is true or good or beautiful, it can lead to Christ. It doesn't have to be all three. Um, and so the music might not be the most morally fundamental and it may not lead to the most um, pure of dancing, uh, but there is a beauty in music and there's a beauty in the love that comes out of these celebrations. And so from that aspect, you know, I try to do everything I can to choose on the more moral end of the songs but sometimes the client wants the other way and you, you push through as best as possible. And maybe you have to say some extra prayers on the way home. But uh, the other aspect is you, you, you have to deal with being in the public eye and sometimes in a world of marriage um, and being a decently public vocal Catholic, um, you have to avoid the situations that are absolutely contrary to the church. And of course you do so in a manner that hopefully still shows respect for the people and the individuals involved. And uh, that has been become a challenge, of course, more over the last 15 years than anything else. Really living in the world, but not being of the world. That's a, that's a theme to this podcast as well. And it's, it's not easy when you're work, working a secular job. I work a, a secular job as well. And uh, there's certain, uh, certain things that uh, certain dealings that you have that uh, you know it just seems like it's it may not be illicit or immoral uh, specifically against your own soul but it, it makes you a little bit uncomfortable right it's uh, it's it's not always easy but uh, but I think you know we can take a lot of solace in, in being in those situations that you know maybe we're the only bible these people are ever going to see right we do live in a very secular secular world right so it's um I, I kind of take that as to, to bloom where you're planted and God puts you in those situations for, for some reason. And, uh, and to, to not be, to not be that example to, to those folks when you have that, that opportunity, when, when God calls on you, you may not have to be, you know, really uh, in, in anybody's face, but the, the opportunity will come the way God wants it to come. The door will open as he wants it to open. Right. So, so being a DJ right now, I mean, it's uh not not easy. I'm thinking uh, in California, there's been some pretty pretty uh, stiff laws, and on the shutdown with this this virus, uh, it's affecting not only the Catholic Church and being a, a a faithful follower of Christ, but also on people's livelihood. So, Chris, maybe tell us a little bit about how that's affected you personally. Yeah. So, uh, as of about early March. Um, we have been as an industry completely non-existent. Um, there are ways that some in the industry have reinvented what they do in order to stay afloat. Um, but they're just, you know, we can't, especially in California, we can't have gathered any size of consequence at least. And so there's just not a place for, especially DJs, but, caterers, rental companies, venues. Um, it, it has, I have, uh, I did an event 
February 22nd. And that was the last event for a long time. Now I've done since then I've done two, how do I say this? Uh, clandestine events here in California, one in Southern California in July, I did a wedding. Uh, it was like, it was actually really nice because it was a Catholic wedding. It was two people who are good Catholics and were getting married in the church and did not live together before they got married. Um, but they started renting a place. Their wedding was supposed to be in April. And they started renting a place in January paid for upfront 100% by the groom while the bride lived in her place, not anywhere near their combined place. And the plan was to do that for four months until they got married and then move in together. And of course they both had income. So they were going to share the cost of living together, which is better for everybody. And when they're married, that's what you do. Well, this all happened and they got bumped and they got bumped and they got bumped. And so in July, they found a parish and a priest who would marry them, just 10 people in the church in the building in July, um, even though things were shut down. And so they had their Catholic wedding in the church by a priest and of course, live streamed it as best they could so that the rest of their guests could watch. But then they moved to his parents' backyard and actually had the reception. Um, and so I actually got to work. It was kind of nice to be back in that world after uh, five full months away from it. And then actually three days ago, I just did a 40th day party um, for uh, a wife and a couple. And I had done their wedding six years ago. Um, so they did it in their own backyard. Um, we didn't go over the top. They had about 60 people, which of course violates all sorts of laws in California. Um, but they wanted to celebrate her birthday and they wanted to do it with their friends and family and have some entertainment along with it. So twice since February, I've been in the fray, uh, but it's been seven months with only two events rather than seven months and 28 to 30 events. Um, so it's a totally different, totally different way of making money, which is not coming from DJing currently. And so what are you doing right now, Chris, I guess, to supplement that? And really, I, I just wanted to highlight to, to people here in Alberta and in Canada that we do have restrictions here and, and they've been they've been difficult. But, you know, we've got a lot of brothers and sisters that are, are Catholics and other people of goodwill who are really having to make some pretty severe sacrifices just to make ends meet. So what are what are you what are you up to right now, Chris, while you're we're waiting this out? So I'm delivering food for a living. <laughs> I um. I actually had thought about going into the, the Uber or the DoorDash kind of world early in the year anyway, as a way to make some side cash when I wasn't in meetings, taking emails and, and doing events just to help pay for, you know, if I could help the cost of owning a vehicle and operating a vehicle with some extra income and everything kind of works out. And if you got a few spare hours a week, it's not that difficult of work. That turned into oh my gosh, I'm not making any money doing anything right now. <laughs> so let's do it full time. And I dove in head first. I actually waited a little while and dove in head first in uh, early May and got on every major platform in terms of, of those. So uh, not sponsors of the Catholic Canuck, but uh, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, as well as Postmates. And then I found a local Santa Clarita only startup company and started delivering with them just a little bit because their volume wasn't as high in order to pay my bills at least. And I've worked my way up to doing almost nothing but that company full time. It's kind of fulfilling to work for a startup, small local business that's doing the thing you were doing with the big conglomerate beforehand. Um, plus, I'm actually making a little more with them doing that. So that's, that's what's paying the bills now. It's really worked out because they've brought me in on a better level. So I'm actually doing a little sales with them and a little dispatch with them. So I'm growing actually in this new local company for as long as I have to be away from what I really love doing. Well, that's good too. And it, it's nice that, uh, that you've landed on your feet. I'm sure there's a lot of people that haven't though. Uh, I know even here in Alberta, there's a lot of folks that, uh, you know, if there was a job that they'd had before this whole, virus thing hit it's uh, definitely not going to be waiting for them when they get back and yeah. uh, it's it's got to be frustrating I, I you know read some stories of your your uh, your lovely governor there governor newsom 
And uh, if you see, you know, there, there's there's obviously a lot of unrest in the United States right now. Uh, there's well, there's a big sin problem everywhere. It's not just in the USA; it's in Canada. There's there's a lot of issues here, but it's it's got to be frustrating to see a shutdown that's so widespread when you see um, the kind of uh, violence and the looting on the streets and and uh, no real uh, conscience for social distancing or anything like that. And yet, uh, when it comes to even attending church, um, you know, let alone just having a, a regular work life and a regular work schedule, those things are all so restricted. Um, kind of give us some of your thoughts on on um, the shutdown and how it's affected even just being a Catholic and, and attending mass. So, uh, of course, I, I think the only state more now than California is New York in terms of the United States. So we are shut down the most. Um, and it, it's, as you said, the contradiction in the allowances between gatherings of a social or religious nature versus gatherings of a uh, protest nature um, are stark and disgusting. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's come to California with uh, a couple pastors coming together with Pastor John MacArthur, who all things being said is a very anti-Catholic pastor, has yes. my support in his legal action against the governor in order to get worship back inside. Um, and I mean, nothing is allowed inside. So in terms of an objective realization here, can't eat in a restaurant in, in California or especially in Southern California. Um, so we also can't eat or we can't worship inside. So there is, there is at least some objective uh, continuity in the shutdown in that matter. I don't think it's right either way. Uh, I have to give some credit where credit is due. It's not like it's one, day. but like I said, the real contrast is the fact that they don't, they don't seem to step in and shut down these riots and these protests where no one is social distancing a good, um, good plurality of the people aren't wearing masks and things of that nature, but it's had, it's had its effect on allowable church attendance and its effect on, um, actual church attendance, which, which I separate because we have been so long without the ability to receive the sacraments that I am seeing a gravity pulling away from them of I will say you're just below average everyday Catholic. Um, now it's kind of a fun, stark context in my world. I grew up and I'm still technically a Latin Catholic man, not the extraordinary mass in Latin, but the Latin, the Western, right? As you will. Um, but a good friend of mine, Father Michael is a Byzantine Catholic priest. And I have since COVID restrictions lightened up a little bit. Actually been in attendance at his parish every week. Um, he has moved his parish, had to move, of course, outside. But because he's a Byzantine Catholic priest and not under the auspices of the local bishop, his bishop and the eparchy of Phoenix brought outdoor masses to the people before the Archdiocese of Los Angeles did that. Um, so we actually got to attend divine liturgy before by a couple of weeks or a few, most of the Catholic churches in the Los Angeles area, which is kind of nice. And what that did was we're a small, the Byzantine churches, they're small congregations. They're very ethnic. Um, most of these churches are. And so those populations just tend to be a smaller side. So attendance at divine liturgy pre COVID was 30 or 40 a week in the in the church when we were inside and we could be full capacity when we moved outside like before the western church did latin western church catholics in the area of his parish started hearing rumors that they could attend liturgy uh outside before their own parish was allowing it and so attendance now is upwards of 70 at the parish outside um, because the, these western catholics have found a place to come get the sacraments. Um, but what I'm seeing at my own parish is a limit of a hundred people, quote unquote, you know, uh, three parishes around me, 
not a one of them is actually counting now that we're outside counting the number show up so attendance can probably range but they state it to be in with state guidelines that you over 100 but on the parishes that have signups they don't get to 100 that's the same that's the same issue we're having up here too chris and uh you know it's it's interesting you say you know that there's a there's a few protestant pastors it seems in california that are that are uh, a lot more vocal and a lot more upfront about protesting this right and and then we've got the same issue probably in california united states as we do in alberta but you know the first thing they did when there was any kind of shutdowns or or restrictions on worship here was that they still made sure that abortion clinics were uh, considered an essential service and uh, i mean that's really sad to me it just doesn't seem like we have enough pushback from from Catholics and, and other people of goodwill. And um, do you think that the, the bishops in California have done enough? I mean, we've seen uh, the Archbishop of San Francisco, Archbishop Corleone, he's been in the news in the last week uh, protesting with some of his parishioners. Um, I don't know if it's against the, the governor or against the, the mayor of San Francisco, but he's certainly at least bringing attention to what he feels and what all of us feel is, is an injustice when you're restricting the um, the attendance of mass and, and reception of the sacraments. But overall, do you think the bishops and, and the clergy and even lay people, have they been doing enough to, to protest in California? My gut reaction answer is no. Um, and, and, and God love Archbishop Coeur d'Alene. Um, I think he is a, a spectacular bishop for our church. Um, and his placement in San Francisco was deliberate and, and as such necessary. Um, and what he did last weekend was phenomenal. And the fact that the turnout was so great with his Eucharistic procession through the streets of San Francisco in protest of no worship inside um, was necessary. And a step I wished and hope more bishops would take. Um, they have not, I have not heard or seen enough vocal protest of the restriction um, from a government level out of our bishops, outside of Coeur d'Alene, to be honest, in California. Um, and I, I, it makes me sad because the necessity and the beauty of the sacraments and, and, don't, and then coming down that way, again, there's a, there's a separation for me in the vocal, the, how vocal clergy, even laity, are against the government restrictions, but how creative or lack thereof parishes are being in terms of offering the sacraments. Three parishes in my city, only one of which is offering standard hours for confession weekly without appointment one one out of three the other parishes require appointment only and i'm like how many catholics are in the archdiocese of la again chris it's the largest archdiocese i believe in north america is it not it is um let me uh i'm gonna do i'm gonna have to do a google check on that yeah it's huge right but you know to to your point yeah for sure check that it's because it is massive and, and you think of you know the schedule to receive confession if there's only one place that you can just show up. i mean that just goes to show how how few confessions are happening right now uh where i live in the archdiocese of edmonton we're really doing our best to make sure that the sacraments and mass are available to people i think we're at 50 percent capacity at our at our churches but uh, you know just talking to a few of the priests they said you know confessions have just cratered like there's just not much going on and even the masses you know there's restrictions on the amount of people that can come but we very rarely do we reach capacity at some of our parishes um, and again it's only half anyways so there is a, a dispensation right now at least in our archdiocese for for people to um, to stay home if, if they need to but uh, I'm I probably share your concern too just for our universal church is that uh, we were already struggling with attendance before this whole virus thing hit uh, now, once we get to some sort of sense of of normal, I don't I don't know what that means yet, but uh, it's uh, a little bit sad to think about uh, you know what we need to do to get 
people back. But, you know, maybe it's an opportunity too. And I, I think that we're actually missing an opportunity here as Catholics to to bring people back into the church and to show them that it is an essential service. It's, it's essential to our souls to receive communion, to go to mass, to go to confession. Uh, it does seem like we're, we're missing a bit of an opportunity there. Yeah. So I, I, I've, I've done the search. It's um, almost 4.7 million Catholics in the archdiocese of Los Angeles. That's incredible. That's more than the whole. Of... Yeah. Yep, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that's more than the whole population of Alberta. <laughs> I believe yeah, Alberta is 4.3 so, million people live in our province, so. Yeah, so it's, a, it's incredible to, to see the lack of birding for such a population. And, um, and you talk about the, what is the difficulty that's going to exist in bringing people back when when the dispensation ends. Now, here's a, there's a smoke at the end of the tunnel or a, or a current, a current light being removed from its bushel basket. The Diocese of Orange, which is just south of the Diocese of Los Angeles and is quite large in its own right, um, moved the dispensation from um, the requirement to attend Mass. So you now, as, as have the obligation to attend mass on Sunday there with some additional dispensation caveats. So if you're over the age of 65, the dispensation remains the dispensation from obligation. So if you're over 65, of orange, you don't have to attend literally. You don't have to attend mass on Sundays. That sounds like a real important, I guess that's a real important development. I think Chris and, just so you know the statistics here, I, I would imagine they're very similar to to what's in, in uh, California as well. But in Alberta, the average age of the the people that have passed away from from COVID nineteen and God rest their souls, uh, obviously all all life is is valuable. And but that that age is eighty three years old, which is uh, uh, several years. I think it's three years higher than the average life expectancy of an Albertan, which is around eighty. So it goes to show that um, you know that. Uh, all life is definitely sacred, but it seems like the when it comes to deaths, that's that's kind of what I'm interested in. When I hear all the statistics and we're doing all these tests and we have all these new cases, you know, tell tell me who's passing away. That's what I, I want to know, the, the age group of of these folks, right? And it seems that um that the science with which a lot of people tell us to follow the science, but the science says that uh that children, especially and young people are are uh, generally untouched by this virus yeah they get a little bit sick but they're very resilient i guess is maybe the right word for it and it seems that uh, the people that unfortunately that get very sick and pass away are either the the elderly who we should uh, definitely protect and do what we can to take care of uh, and also those who already have a pre-existing medical condition and when i see somebody like yourself and, and so many others that um that are losing their their income and losing their their job because you know work is is our it's our dignity, right? You know, Pope John Paul II said that, Chris, that work is, is our dignity as human beings, and, and it's a right for us to uh, make a living, uh, a good living for ourselves and for our families. And uh, it does seem, and I was just reading a quote from uh, the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I'm sure you know more about Chris than some of us do, but she is a, a Catholic. But she said, uh, when responding to Archbishop Cordelione's protest he says she says with all due respect to my archbishop i think we should follow the science and i just think i say looks like nancy you're missing a word there and that's political in front of science but what do you think uh, chris what's our what's the action plan for us to to kind of get back in the game as catholics here and, and bring people back to mass what what do you what are some of your thoughts and suggestions um, so that's, uh, wow, you want my opinion. I love it. Um, I'll start with this caveat for those of you listening at home who might not realize that David and I are on Skype or see each other. Um, but David properly used air quote when describing Ms. Pelosi. <laughs> um, but, um, it's so, so I have a, I have a few things and, and I have a lot of, where does this come from? I will start. I will start by saying this: there are people in the world who are smarter than I am. Uh, one of them, as you or your listeners may know, is a gentleman by the name of Jim, 
And Jimmy is about to release via Catholic Answers Press a new book that is targeted at bringing people back to mass post COVID. Um, so there's actually a book from a very, very smart man coming on this. I have yeah, that was uh, J- Jimmy Aiken, right, Chris? So, Jimmy Aiken? Jimmy Aiken, yeah. Jimmy Aiken and from Catholic Answers, yeah. The, I forget what the name of the book is, um, but it, it, the manuscript has been turned in and it should be published very soon. Um, and it won't be an overly expensive book. They're trying to make it priced right. So again, not, not a, a sponsor, um, but, a, but a plug nonetheless for our brothers in Christ. I don't mind those plugs. That's all good. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I think there's a few things. Um, some of which seem more harsh and controversial. So my first suggestion that I've told several priests and lots of people is I think as soon as, as soon as again, we're back to normal. So when we're in a world where there isn't much reasonable fear for most of the Catholic population, so again, early on without therapeutics and without a, without a vaccine of any kind, we can discuss the vaccine side later, but there's still some, somewhat of a fear for, like you said, the aged population and those with comorbidities. Um, but when we're out of that realm, maybe when there's some therapeutics that are, really, that are working really well for most people, and maybe even one of the things the churches need to do is turn the cameras off. People are too used to, over the last six plus months, of streaming mass with the divine liturgy in their homes. And I tend to be a little harsh on this, but take that away. If you have an obligation to attend on a Sunday, don't give someone the additional excuse to stay home. Well, I've been attending via my television for the last six months. It's not the same. It's still there. (laughs) It's still there. So why not stay at home and stream the liturgy? And it's just enabling when you add the obligation, when you remove the dispensation from the obligation. And so my thing is maybe there is a beauty in bringing the local familiar um, liturgy to the people who are home. So this isn't a permanent thing, but for two, maybe three months, take that off the table for those who are able to attend in person um, because then you're not enabling them to stay home. And, and it's sadly, this is going to have to be a large blanket thing because if you, if you have a local area with a few parishes and only one removes streaming, there's, there's just, there's too much temptation to stay home. So that's, that's one of the first things when we get back to normal and when it's, when it's easy and proper for most people to come back to the liturgy don't give them an excuse to stay home. So turn that streaming camera off. Bring it back in a few months, especially for the homebound, but turn it off initially. Um, let's, let's force people, for lack of a better term, back into the building. Some of the other things that I think we need to do in order to help people come back to the liturgy when this is all over, over is for a lot of parishes, and I'm going to speak from America, specifically Southern California, because that's my reference, these liturgies weren't beautiful, they weren't reverent, and they aren't mysterious. And I think we have a population that is looking for those things in their lives because too much of our lives outside of the church building aren't beautiful, aren't reverent, and aren't mysterious. And that's something people are looking for. So a return to those things in our liturgies will help bring everyone back. And the great thing I'm seeing from the Catholic population is it seems to be the younger side that is thriving and yearning for that reverence, that beauty, and that mystery in the liturgy. Um, and they may be the saving grace here to potentially bring their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their grandparents back to the liturgy after this because when that's what you have attended and that's what you've been watching on TV, then it's kind of easy not to go back to something that wasn't overly beautiful, wasn't overly reverent, it wasn't overly mysterious because there's not a yearning inside for those things when they don't exist. There is a yearning for those things when they do. And I think that's going to really help bring things back. And my study at the Liturgical Institute is really helping me to see what those things are, how they should be implemented. And, and hopefully 
on the Western side of things, we get back to that. You know, Chris, we also have a, a Ukrainian Catholic churches in abundance here in Alberta and in Western Canada. And that, uh, that Eastern liturgy is, is beautiful in itself. A lot of singing, a lot of prayer and a lot of reverence during the mass. And obviously it's, it's very similar to, to what we have in our standard, uh, Latin rite, but it's, uh, the beauty is definitely there. And I think, uh, uh, very similar to the the beauty that you're talking about and couldn't agree more with having a beautiful liturgy. It just makes such a big difference and it brings that reverence um, to the forefront and the focus back on Jesus and that eternal sacrifice that he's made for us on the cross. So Chris, I just want to thank you for all your insights. It's been uh, it's been a blast and uh, really look forward to uh, to chatting with you again, hopefully in the, the near future. And uh, we praying for you and uh, all the people in California. But again, thanks for your insight on what life is like to be a Catholic in California. You know what, David, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. This is a great opportunity. And of course, you know, I'm always available if you'd like me to come back. Um, I, I love that little the nickname you gave me is the U.S. correspondent. Um, I'm stuck in one little corner of the U.S., but um, I'll take that in case you ever need some American insight into some other uh, questions you might have about the way we live out our faith in the world. But again, thanks for having me. God bless you and the family um, and have a great one. Well, that was a blast chatting with Chris Mowry about being a Catholic in California. Some great insights there for sure. And let's keep Catholics in California and all over the world, anywhere where mass is restricted and any reception of the sacraments is restricted. We need Jesus in our lives. We do have a sin problem. So the faster that people can get back to mass, the better. Thanks for listening, everybody. I look forward to chatting with you again very soon. God bless.